We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. the timeline of phoenix suns podcast my name is mike i'm here with sam sam how are you doing i'm doing all right mike the that sucked that sucked <laughs> you want to do it again no let's let's just keep going let's get it over with <laughs> i think anyone who's listening right now so we're let's 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 say this we're not gonna bore you with you know 50 minutes of talk about the spurs game because there's no point we'll talk about right. it for a little bit we're mostly going to talk about the upcoming week because I think it's more interesting. But because I know how our download numbers work, if you're listening the morning after we release this, <laughs> right after one of the Suns' worst losses of the season, if not the worst loss of the season, then you are absolutely definitely a real a real fucking fan because that was a really bad game. Yeah, we're recording this immediately after the Spurs game. And then after Sam and I talk for a few minutes here, we're going to switch over to an interview with Dan Favalli, our friend where we talk about the Eastern Conference road trip that the Suns are going on this week. But we have to talk about the Spurs game at least a little bit just to get it out of the way here. Um, I don't care. I think the Suns are pretty bad in this game, and I think that happens. Uh, There is like a little bit of a Jedi mind trick thing that Pop does to the Suns somehow where it seems to happen. Like the Suns are a victim of Popovich resting all of his best players and the Spurs still winning. That, That happens every year. And it just so happened to uh, be the Suns. The Suns were the victim of that this time. 
there's there's some interesting stuff that happened in this game, but more more than anything else, the Spurs just hit kind of every shot in the specific type of coverage that the Suns were deploying against them. But what did you think? Yeah, the the Suns played a drop coverage for the first three quarters until they tried some small ball five minutes with Torrey Craig. But while they were playing a drop, it was with both DeAndre Ayton and Dario Sharge dropping back. They were trying to concede that mid-range area for, for the Spurs, and the Spurs hit every single shot in that area, even contested ones tonight. Their execution was was flawless. Um, you know, typically I think coaching, just to, to touch on pop, I think coaching is kind of overrated in its impact and, and the way we talk about it most of the time, but there are a few select coaches in the NBA who could lead any squad of bums to a 500 record, and Popovich is one of those guys. Yeah, and they're actually below 500 now, which is why the Suns lost <laughs> to them. Uh, <laughs> because they lose. Uh, there has to be an element of this is the game before they go on the road trip, and the road trip is against a bunch of great teams. They were just looking forward a little bit, and I don't think they were fully prepared for uh, how disciplined the, the Spurs were going to be in this particular game. The, the one thing I can say is I think that when the Suns get in a hole early enough, I don't know that the starters are built to dig out of that, if you will. And I use the word dig because they seem to often go a little deeper in that hole. The Suns have actually spent the least amount of time of any NBA team down by 10 points this entire season. So this was not a situation that they've been in a lot. And I think if you're if you're going at Monty Williams, which maybe I did a little bit on Twitter today... Uh, you have to remember that this isn't exactly something they've had a ton of experience with. So there is an element to let's see what our starters can do and let's see what our guys can do before you go to a lineup like they did with the small ball lineup. But it's it's specifically a small ball lineup is meant to stop a team that's doing the offensive thing, things that this team was doing. They did it against the Kings as well, and it worked with the Kings game. The Kings went on a run. They went small. They switched everything. The Kings lost all their rhythm. And even in this game, the Spurs lost their rhythm to an extent, but there were some miscommunications with that small ball lineup on switches, and the offense was a little stagnant. No Devin Booker, by the way, in both of those games in the small ball lineup, which I'm not sure if that's by design. Like, do they not want Devin Booker in some of those switches, or or I'm not sure what they're doing. But, you know, that would be the only thing that I would say that I'd like to see them go to that a little bit more if the Suns get in a hole like that. But beyond that, I'm not sure I have any other valuable analysis on that game. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm in full agreement with you. I'm not panicking based on this one game. I will say, if San Antonio is still in that seventh seed going into going into a first round series, I think this might contradict something we said in uh, the upcoming conversation you guys are going to hear with Dan, which we recorded earlier today. But uh, the Suns are still heavy favorites in that series. But Pop always has a trick or two up his sleeve, <laughs> so it might not be so easy as proven by tonight. Yeah, and the Suns won three games directly before the Spurs game, Houston, Miami, and Sacramento. Uh, The Houston game was a classic Suns game against a relatively bad team where they go ahead by a lot, let them back in the game, and then close them out strong in the fourth quarter. Uh, Same with Sacramento. The Miami game in particular was kind of a blowout. The Suns kind of just worked Miami from from tip to end, and uh, it was kind of a fascinating week outside of the Spurs game. Uh, what what are your thoughts on any of those games? I, I have some things that I'd like to talk about, but do you have anything specific that stood out in those games? I, I think uh, just two players that I think we can single out from this week. Uh, do you want me to... I don't know if you have one in mind. Yeah. Should we trade back no, and ahead. forth? Um, let's start with actually small. Let's start with Javon Carter. 
Uh, he's a guy who's gotten his rhythm back this week. In fact, today it was kind of sad. Actually, he had 17 points, which is mm-hmm. um, the second most he's ever had as a son. And it came in just such a brutal loss. But his last five games, I, I haven't taken the time here to, to calculate the exact stats, but his last five games here, Javon Carter, who is not a score first player by any means, has 14, 9, 9, 13, and now 17 points. So mm-hmm. he's re-entered the lineup in favor of, of Langston Galloway and um, and obviously Etuan Moore, who, who hasn't played in a couple months now. That only makes sense when Javon is hitting his shots. And right now he's he's toward hot from deep. He he can't miss. I think he's raised his three-point percentage from it was about 31% like a week ago. And now it's already up to like 37, 38% on the season because he's just come out chucking. He's even, you know, running off screens and, and kind of doing some lengths and like movements. Not mm-hmm. to the same extent, but but we've seen a little bit of it from him. So that's a guy where you know his defensive impact. Is he, you know, one of the top eight, nine guys in a playoff rotation? I don't think he's cracked that playoff rotation, to be honest. I think Monty has eight or nine guys probably in mind, and, and Javon is the tenth guy. But in certain in certain matchups, uh, the Heat was a good example. If you just want a guy to chase Duncan Robinson around screens for, for 10 or 15 select minutes, he, he could crush that, you know? And so, like, certain playoff games, he could come in and he could play 5 or 10 minutes and harass someone on the perimeter. And as long as he hits a 3 or 2, you know he's doing his part on offense enough yeah. to be worth putting in the game. So I want to give a shout-out to him because this is this has by far been his best week uh, of the season. Yeah, he's looked like he did in the bubble. I think that was the last time we saw Javon Carter be like an ultra-effective offensive player. He's always the defensive player that he is and that he's a pest that really just bothers guys and and still has some small limitations just from being short uh, compared to the rest of the players on the court. But you really see how valuable he can be and you know, looking at the box score for the Spurs game, he led the team in scoring. I'm, I'm not. Is that the only time that that's ever happened? I can't remember so, a single other time. I, on the Suns, yes, I looked up his career high when he was at like 15, 17 points because I was like, Javon Carter averages like four points per game for his career. What uh, could his career high possibly be? Yeah. He had thirty two in a game yeah. one of, one of the very last games of the season, his rookie year in Memphis, like an yeah, Alec I Peters. That. I know, think it was the game. last game. Insane. Yeah, and it, six threes or something like yeah he had or seven threes like a a lot uh but yeah I think you're exactly right when you talk about him in the playoffs in that maybe he's not a guarantee every night but I'd be shocked if he didn't play at some point in the playoffs especially when you have the type of guards that the Suns are likely to go against even in the first round where if someone's going off he's just another guy that you can throw out there and give them a different look defensively to see if he can put a stop to it just harassing guys up and down the court like he does affects the game, even a small amount, just not letting them get into their offense the way that they want to get into their offense. And yeah, he was he was excellent in the Spurs game, a great week throughout. And I think earning those minutes and in a way that I didn't really expect, because what's happened now is you need, basically he's playing a lot of time with, with uh, Chris Paul, because as we know, the Suns like to have multiple offensive creators on the floor at all times. And I think with Devin Booker, especially they don't really play a lot of time with Devin Booker at the point guard position without another creator. Javon's still not that, but I think with Chris Paul and Javon Carter, you can get away with a lot because Chris Paul can be so ball dominant. It's still Javon Carter shooting threes, not doing a lot of, 
pick and roll ball handling, penetration mm-hmm. passing. He, he's just, they told him, in fact, he's, he talked about it after a game. I'm not sure which one it was. They told him to let it fly. Like his job yeah. is just to shoot as much as possible now. And I think that's the right, that's the right approach with him. He hasn't shown enough I mean, as a creator to, to really be given those reins. Again, just listen to these box scores. He shot 10 threes in 21 minutes against Washington, five threes in 18 minutes against Houston, seven in 21 minutes against Miami. Those are high, high volume numbers. And and I think it's interesting on offense. They, they stick them in a lot of situations where they also know that when Javon gets the ball, it sticks a little bit. Like, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call him a ball hog, but a creator for others, he's he's just not. That's kind of why he struggled to mm-hmm. find a consistent role in the NBA because he's point guard size, but he's just not a point guard. So they stick him in situations where you've got the entire bench out there. You've got Dario, Torrey, and, and basically everyone else. They're rotating the ball around the perimeter, but when it ends up at in Javon's hands, like, that's the final stop. <laughs> you know, it's once it gets in his hands, it's going up. Um, especially when he's in that corner or wing position. So, yeah, he he just he's adopted the full Langston Galloway approach to his offense at, at this point. And for as long as this hot streak continues, you know, he's going to be worthy of some minutes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how much he plays down the stretch here because, uh, you know, they're staggering a lot, Devin Booker and Chris Paul. And I think that's the right approach as they get closer and closer to the playoffs. I think the other guy that you wanted to talk about, I assume, because I wanted to talk about him as well, was DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, and I don't want to, I don't want to downplay how good he was before this Spurs game because everybody was bad in the Spurs game. It just was one of those games where nobody played very well. But I thought DeAndre Ayton had a really great week for the Suns where he just did everything really well. Like there wasn't a ton of mistakes. And I think it stands out when a center doesn't make mistakes. It just does on any team. And I think it, it does when Dario was, you know, sort of at his peak earlier in the season, just didn't make a lot of mistakes. And it does now with DeAndre Ayton just not making a ton of mistakes. Some some great scoring games. He's, he still has yet to pass 30 points this season. I really was thinking that it was going to happen this week a couple of times, and it still didn't happen, and I think it will at some point soon. I think the Sacramento game was, in particular, a game where Sacramento was going really small. Sacramento is not a good defensive team, but uh, they started Damian Jones, and, and Rashawn Holmes did not play, and then they had Hassan Whiteside as the backup they scrapped the idea of Damian Jones entirely because yeah. the Suns were just beating up on him by the second half and were essentially playing with Harrison Barnes at center at any time that Hassan Whiteside was off the floor. And in a game like that, the ideal scenario is that you can trust your center with the ball 10 to 15 feet away from the basket. He's capable of shooting over guys or backing them down. And this was a game where DeAndre Ayton really did come through because uh, those types of defenders are sort of designed to to take the ball out of a guard's hands. And I thought he was particularly good in that game, but he had a great week overall. Yeah, and, and you know, I recently, for the first time, I haven't done this all season, I posted on Twitter the other day, I took a deep, not a deep dive, but I looked at his shot charts, you know, just to really see what we were getting out of DeAndre Ayton recently. He was running a 62% true shooting before the All-Star break, which is already good. That's that's already a good efficiency number. Um, but oftentimes with centers, especially rim runners, like the absolute best rim runners, the guys who just dunk, like a, a Mitchell Robinson or a Clint mm-hmm. Capella or something, someone mm-hmm. who doesn't have the touch of DeAndre Ayton, those guys can run up near 70% true shooting. And lo and behold, that's what Ayton's doing um, after the All-Star break this year. So what the shot chart is showing 
He's taking less mid-range shots in general. Obviously, that's going to help, is leave the mid-range shots, a good amount of them, to Chris Paul and Devin Booker. I guess a better way of saying that, leave the upper elbow mid-range shots to Chris Paul and Devin Booker. They can can kind of patrol from the pick and roll, um, top of the key, and then get into the teeth of the defense right around the elbow and hit those mid-range shots. And we're seeing... What we saw earlier in the season is we saw Aiton shooting from that position. He's kind of given up on that shot now. However, the caveat, the the disclaimer here, Aiton still shoots some mid-range shots. He likes to face up kind of from the, the, the low block, both on the right and left side, where he can either face up from about 15 feet out, or he can go for a turnaround where he's actually... He's pretty damn good, and he, and he's been converting those mid-range shots a lot better in the second half of the season. Right. So there's some nuance to it. The other thing, you know, we've seen him toying with the idea of shooting threes again only a couple times. Like, he's taken, like, three. He's missed all of them. Um, but I think it was interesting how he basically didn't shoot those at all for two months straight, probably. And, and now it seems to be back in his game, um, or at least it was this past week. So I don't know if that's yeah. a conversation he's had with the coaching staff of they just want to be like, hey, we, we want you to try to keep defenses honest in the playoffs, so you should start taking these when you're wide open again, just like just to test. Um, it hasn't yeah. worked yet, but, but I don't hate that idea. I, I'm, I'm past it, I think. I think that we're done with it because I think he's shown enough versatility inside the arc that we don't really need it the suns also have surrounded him by enough shooters that it's not a big deal i definitely don't think they need it i want to make that clear like i definitely don't think they need it to be the best possible team this year you just need Aiden to roll hard and and a couple face-ups now and again is nice but um but eventually like i I, the hard thing about Aiden right now is how do you manage What's the best thing to do right now to win a championship with the understanding of this is a third-year prospect? Chris Paul is old. We need some sort of development being worked into to his regimen because we need him to work on some things, right? So I think that's what they're struggling yeah. with. And no, eventually you'd like Aiden to be like a 33% three-point shooter who takes like yeah. one or two to game. Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. I, I Just from that perspective, what you're talking about with... Um, the the Suns' pursuit of a championship, the most confident I've been in their capabilities has been this stretch where DeAndre Ayton has been very good without playing sort of outside himself in that he hasn't had to dribble a ton in order to be good. He hasn't had to shoot those sort of elbow mid-range jumpers in order to be good. He has found ways to be successful beyond that. And I want to even point out that the baseline the baseline area where he's catching it, that sort of mid post area where he's capable of shooting over guys. The reason he's more effective from that specific area is because he has been unafraid to attack guys in that area, whether it be in the post or on a face up game. And the advantage of that specific area is that because the baseline is there, he doesn't have guys reaching in on him from both sides of the ball. It's a great point. I think where he struggles from the elbow area is that there are guys coming at him from both sides and then he has to make a decision often triple teamed in that area, which is good that he has to be able to do that. But also I think it's a plan by other teams to make him try to put the ball on the floor or try to pass out of a triple or or double team in those specific areas. If you're more capable of catching it on that baseline area, yes, you might get a double, but it's often coming off of a shooter directly behind the three point line when you're in that baseline area. That's an easy pass for him to make, being that he's holding the ball over his head. 
but also unafraid to dribble once, unafraid to back guys down from that area. If he has an area from the floor where he's more than a singular threat, because that elbow area always was a jumper. He wasn't really taking it to guys because of the defense coming from both sides. In that baseline area, there's more than one option. There's the dribble, there's the post-up, there's the shot, there's the pass. That makes him more effective in that area, and I think that they can feel more and more confident giving him the ball in the baseline area because of uh, the, the way that they sort of designed the offense around him. It's often Jay Crowder or Cameron Johnson directly behind him. So to, I think to, they're doing the right things with him. To watch, I agree they're doing the right things with him. Um, if Suns fans want a good example of someone who's just totally mastered eating up space in the middle of the floor at the big man position. Like, if you want a far away lofty goal of, like, what you want DeAndre Ayton to develop, not now, but five years from now, then just pay really close attention when we play the Sixers this week because that's what Joel Embiid is going to do. Well, he's, yeah, yeah. He, like, he's going to destroy us in that way. You know, Joel Embiid, I think people talk a lot about how he's keeping post-up game alive in the NBA in 2021, and, and to an extent, that's true. He posts up a lot, and he's efficient as a post-up player in a way that a lot of centers aren't. Therefore, a lot of offenses have kind of given up on that as a major vehicle of their offense. The Sixers, it's still viable for them. But beyond that, Joel Embiid is just an example of a guy. He gets into the elbow. He's not afraid of making reads, putting the ball on the floor either way, and he'll just destroy you no matter how much help you send him. So, like, that's probably the... I'm not even saying Aiton that it's even possible for him to get there. But like, if you just want to know what yeah. we're talking about, if like some centers can do that, just watch him beat on Tuesday. Cause, cause it's going to be on full display. Yeah. And that's an MVP level guy. There's also Nikola Jokic who probably will win the MVP. That's capable of hurting you from every area on the floor, but maybe a guy in the next tier down Bam Adebayo is mm -hmm. a really good example. And I think what Bam does is he leverages his playmaking from that position now, DeAndre Ayton has struggled a little bit from there, and I think it, it matters to be able to dribble towards the basket in that area or shoot that mid-range shot relatively well because then you're not getting double-teamed as much. Um, but, yeah, that's something that if DeAndre Ayton can develop a skill in, in passing, and I, and I said it before, he's shown some flashes of that recently, enough that I think they can start working it into his game, if not this year, as early as next season. And there's some things that you can do from that area as a playmaker if you just catch it without just relying on specifically that jump shot. But uh, obviously has been a really good week for him outside of the Spurs game because it was bad for everyone. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But still, I think interesting enough that they can take it into this road trip and hopefully really get some great games out of him. 
you know, you know Devin Booker's going to play well against Philadelphia and Boston. So beyond that, everyone else needs to play well in the rest of the games because I think you can count on him to do pretty well in those. Um, up next, we're going to switch over to an interview with Dan Favalli. Dan lives in New York. We assume that means that he's more capable of covering the Eastern Conference, and I think we were right on that assumption. He's a secret Suns fan. He also writes for Bleacher Report. We'll switch over to that after our break here, and uh, you'll get to hear a great interview with him that we recorded before the Spurs game. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. All right, joining us on the timeline is Dan Favalli, writer for Bleacher Report, host of the Hardwood Knox podcast, deputy editor of NBA Math, and a blue wire bro, as we call them, a friend... <laughs> A friend of our podcast, Dan Favalli. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Pretty well. It's hard to complain. You know, the Suns have been playing so well lately, uh, and it's a lot a lot more fun to cover a really good team than to cover a really bad team. Uh, you came on earlier in the year to talk about the Suns. I think you're a secret Suns fan. Maybe not so secret uh, <laughs> anymore. Not so secret now. Uh, you <laughs> seem to be pretty high on the Suns early on. Even when they were sort of struggling to start, you know, a struggle for the Suns this season was eight and eight, which obviously was still a massive improvement over the Suns. Actually, Dan, the first time you came on our pod this year, do you remember what the Suns' record was the day that we recorded that first time? Ooh, weren't they like fourteen and thirteen or something? Was they it were eight, eight and seven. seven. So mm. right about where Mike was just talking about when they were eight and eight, that was kind of you came on at the low point of the season, and since then the Phoenix Suns are thirty-two and eight. Yeah, do we owe you? Do we owe you thanks of some sort? <laughs> I look. I, doesn't this date back to you guys came on my podcast and I said the Suns were going to win at a fifty-seven game pace, and even you two, I could just feel it through the airwaves that you were like, "What the fuck is this guy talking about?" <laughs> hope, hope is a dangerous thing for Suns fans. <laughs> it's it's always a little bit scary to be too optimistic about a team because uh, uh, our hopes have been dashed a few times. I don't know if you know the history of the Phoenix Suns, but it, it, there's been a lot of a lot of uh, really dramatic endings. So, I you know as high as as high as Sam and I were, and you know sometimes Suns fans say, well, people who cover the entire NBA were low on the Suns, and I think Dan, you're you're an example of how that's just not true. Um, since then, since we last spoke with you, obviously on an insane pace, win pace here. But what have you thought just watching the Suns? Just your general perspective of it i i don't think my thoughts on them have changed at all except maybe i feel not so much over the past seven games i guess but shakier about them up front at the center position than i did um i think we reached a point where i probably felt better about deandre ayton than either of you two did and you know his he's been a monster his last seven games but when you look at you know 
Sharich is shooting better from three over his past few games, but those minutes with him at the five feel off where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you guys have mentioned this, where Sharich's defensive value is being in the right place at the right time. It just feels like he's not in the wrong place, but that defenses are figuring out how to, to get by him more. And when you're looking at their just potential matchups in the West, if you can't count on Aiton to play like he has over his last seven games, there are some question marks there. But the other thing about this season, and it still doesn't really change about how how I feel about the Suns is I've had to look at every team of the league at a whole in like segments because it feels like so much is changing when you're looking at player availability, injuries, the league's mm -hmm. health and safety protocols, rest. Um, this has been the most difficult season for me to to cover from a national perspective just because I, I, I still feel like I lack a feel for for so many teams based off all the stuff that, that's happened or the general inconsistency. So I would still, after the Nuggets made the trade for Aaron Gordon, I'd entertain that I thought they were the biggest threat to come out of the West among the non-Lakers division if, if LA was healthy. Um, but I, I ended up landing on the Suns anyway, and I think post-Jamal Murray injury, um, you know, people are going to pick the Clippers. Some of them are going to pick the Jazz, but I still think the Suns are like that foremost threat in the Western Conference. Can I ask for your take on, on something that Mike and I have debated a little bit, and I know some Suns fans are asking about online. Like you said, availability is the big thing. It's it's so hard to get a feel for anyone this year. In fact, we're going to talk in a little bit about some of these uh, amazing Eastern Conference opponents that are coming up this week for Phoenix. It's hard to get a feel for those teams, too, because they haven't played each other all that much. And when they have, it's like one superstar, another superstar always seems to be out of the game. With the injuries that are happening, and, and given, I'm going to knock on wood here, but given that the Suns have been fairly okay about health so far this year, do you think there's there's a good argument for resting um, anyone on the Suns, trying to load manage where you can in, in these final few weeks as we lead up to the playoffs? Is that something you've thought about? Is that something you'd like to see out of certain guys? I know Chris Paul's the obvious um, candidate, but but maybe there are others too. There are two players that I don't think would ever accept it, and that's Chris Paul and Mikael Bridges are mm -hmm. the two guys that I'd be worried about most. Is mm -hmm. um, Mikael Bridges just looked banged up and. I, I think it was a, one of the Suns' recent national TV games. Maybe it was the Jazz. And it's sort of, I guess, normalized a little bit since. But that dude could use a break. And then Chris Paul, I mean, I, I'm just always in fear of a hamstring issue or something with him. And you're you're looking at his age. So I would like to see the Suns sort of get to that point. And now, you know, knowing Donovan Mitchell is going to miss a few games, uh, maybe you sense that you could get first in the West and that being one or two ensures that you don't face the Lakers at this point in, in the first mm -hmm. round because it doesn't seem like they're going to fall to play in. Uh, so I, I'm I don't think this team will is my stance, but I think when looking at Chris Paul and Mikael Bridges, I would really like to see their, their loads lightened over the next, you know, month plus, because you look at these schedules where it's teams like 17 games in 29 days or whatever it is. And that's absolutely harrowing. I don't care how old you are either. That's just, mm -hmm. that's yeah. an incredibly truncated stretch. Yeah, well, Chris Paul will will just say that since he's become a vegan, he hasn't been injured uh, <laughs> at all. He really truly believes that. But I think you're right. Like, obviously, an injury to Chris Paul or Devin Booker would be huge for this team. And and I think the way DeAndre Ayton's playing, even when he was sort of up and down, like his importance is still so massive to the team because you need a guy who does the things that he does. But with I, I'm sort of terrified of a Mikael Bridges injury. You watch. It was a heel problem that sort of slowed him down, and and the idea that that could sort of be turned into another maybe more serious injury has been keeping me up at night because of his importance to the team and his versatility defensively. 
and it's interesting for him because you look at the last few games and um, yeah, up and down, I think in the last 10, 15 games offensively, but there's never really a time outside the jazz game where he hasn't done the things right that you need him to do defensively. But I want to go back to something you said, Dan, you mentioned the teams that could be coming out of the West and you said sons, uh, jazz and Clippers were main. Th- you, you left out an obvious team there. I think with the Lakers is that just because of their injuries? Are you just are you afraid to sort of pick them at this point because we haven't seen them fully healthy in so long? Oh no, they would actually if unless you tell me that AD and LeBron won't be on the court, they would still actually be my pick to come out of the West. Um, I've always just viewed it as who's what's the team that's the biggest threat to them, and I think I've at this point where I just default to LeBron's team because he's yeah doubting him has just not paid off for me in the past right. mm-hmm. and. They just have, you know, when you just look at duos in the league, there's not really enough, I guess Brooklyn now, but they're never healthy either. To have two top five or top seven players, top 10, whatever it is, like that's just special right now. And I still don't think, um, you know, Derek, I I, I think Anthony Davis is still somehow underrated on the defensive end because people Mm -hmm. pay so much attention to on-off splits. But the things he can do in the playoffs and the lineups that he can just anchor that should not exist unless he himself is otherwise on the floor um, is massive to me. So they're both in the game if they're both healthy i would default to the lakers but the suns i i think it's a testament to how this roster was built um and and even how they've played thus far obviously that after the nuggets got aaron gordon and were fully healthy that was just a perfect fit that was the player they needed did so many things um on defense for them even if you don't think he's a lockdown one-on-one guy and i still felt compelled to default to the suns and that's I, i think that speaks to the to the level of of trust that Devin Booker has earned and should have earned, at least from the national media with what he's done over the past few years, knowing what Chris Paul is able to do for this team. And then the supporting cast, maybe outside of really like DeAndre Ayton this season, there's been like a lot of steadying performances where you can at least bank on certain guys doing certain things. And this also feels like a team where, yeah, there are questions like, is Torrey Craig going to shoot 1 trillion percent from three for the rest of the season? (laughs) You know, I, I am worried about that. You know, do they get to the rim enough? Um, people yeah. harp on their free throw attempt rate. I actually really don't care about that. And my my I, my two word answer to that is Lou Williams. Just look at how he fares mm-hmm. in the playoffs. The foul yeah. stuff doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very high on the Suns. It's just I can't get them. I'll call it the coward's pick, but I, it's LeBron. So I still think the Lakers, if they're healthy, are that favorite. favorite. We we talked about free throws exactly that same argument last week. I brought up like. I think it's fair for the record if anyone wants to get down on the Suns free throw rate, but then you also have to be equally down on the Nuggets and Clippers because they also don't get to the free throw line. So if it doesn't bother you, like I could easily see the Clippers coming out of the West, regardless of free throws. Um, Therefore, I have to apply the same logic to Phoenix. But we already heard you talk a little bit about uh, maybe not not so much a lack of faith, but just a maybe not the strongest feelings about Dario Saric. Um, are there any other obvious weaknesses here that, that you look at this roster? I mean, we're sitting here, it's April 17th when we're recording this. They're up to sixth in offensive rating. They're fifth in defensive rating. It doesn't feel like there are obvious, obvious holes, but as you look at specific playoff matchups, uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, playoff matchups are interesting and even if you end up and we're probably looking at I don't think there's anyone they're going to face in the first round that is going to be a team that I wouldn't pick them to beat it could be Dallas it could be Golden State I still would pick Phoenix to beat them it's when you get into like those second round possibilities and later where I don't know that they match up with a full strength like Lakers squad particularly well Um, I would be very curious to see um, can they get away with some of their non Aiton lineups if you're facing the Jazz, if you're facing the Nuggets and you have Gobert and Jokic there? 
Um, so th those are things that I'm really looking at. And we're going to reach a point where you've gotten good three-point shooting from your supporting cast. Uh, but is that just going to hold up in the playoffs? You know, mm -hmm. Torrey Craig aside, but like even just other guys like Cam Johnson and Mikael Bridges, they don't have a postseason sample to to look back on. And so there are going to be moments when teams are able to, if you, you know, if you're going up against, let's say the Clippers or something like they're going to be able to get the ball out of Paul and Booker's hands and force mm -hmm. other guys to make plays. Do you have that on this team? And I, I think they've proven that they do, but does it translate to the postseason? Because there might just be, I don't want to call it a lack of variance in their supporting cast, but unless De DeAndre Ayton's done a much better job over the past seven games where so many of his shots are coming in the, the restricted area, a fewer percentage of his shots are as jumpers. And I think that's the way he probably needs to play. But if he's not doing that, you sort of have a variance in how shot profiles from guys are coming because who is the player on this team that's going to put consistent pressure on the rim? And I feel right. like that's the point with this team that hasn't been belabored enough where everyone's like, oh, free throw attempt rate, free throw attempt rate. And I didn't even think <laughs> um, Sam made this point just now. I didn't even think about it. Like the good teams that have, there are a ton of good teams right now that are not getting to the line. It's sort of the same thing with the Clippers, though, where it's getting to the rim is is still valuable, and it feels like the Suns are still not getting there enough, even though, you know, you look like their pace has picked up, their average time of possession yeah. um, over the past, uh, I don't know, since like March 1st or something, the last time I looked at the data. So those are the two things that, or I guess it's one thing, just looped together, that um, is standing out, is do they have that variance in the supporting cast of their offense, where is Aiton going to put enough pressure on the basket or do they have mm -hmm. can they trust their supporting cast guys to knock down those big time three-pointers in the postseason can i just say people accuse often they just point fingers and they say the national media doesn't watch the suns the national media doesn't watch team x or team y you in the span of 10 minutes have hit on some of just the main <laughs> main points that mike and i have been talking about like last week and for weeks so um kudos kudos because yeah like the pace thing not everyone's picked up on that you often still like go into opposing team games and hear the announcers be like oh phoenix you know phoenix is a fast team they've always been a fast team you know people who just like obviously don't pay attention but uh but yeah that's that's a great point i would kill to see the suns push the pace more after turnovers has been the most infuriating thing and i was yep, looking yep. this up for a piece i was working on a couple weeks ago um, they're 14th in average possession time that's per uh, unpredictable since March 1st. And yet, like, they still haven't really ticked up when you're looking at after turnovers. It's like they're doing their damage after, um, or they picked up their pace a lot after made shots, not so much after defensive rebounding. And I feel like those live ball opportunities is where they can, you know, butter their bread a little bit more in the postseason because all three of us know that getting out in transition is like just more theoretical when it gets mm -hmm. to postseason defenses, but those live ball opportunities, like after, after you create a turnover, when you really can dictate the terms of, of engagement, I would love to see the Suns just be more aggressive because even when it seems like Chris Paul is running up the court, there's always that pullback. And mm -hmm. I feel like the Suns have the personnel or at least the talent to be like more aggressive 100%. in that situation. And there's, and there's less variance in those plays too. Just quickly, I'll say like Mikhail Bridges doesn't have that track record in the playoffs of, being a 40% three-point shooter, but you know if Mikhail Bridges is filling the lane, he's going to get those easy transition buckets. So there's there's a mm -hmm. difference there in what he's able to do, the types of things that might translate to playoff basketball and not necessarily, you know, some things will translate, some things may not. He's, I think Mikhail Bridges particularly has become more creative in his finishes around the rim as well. With With a guy like him, you look at his arms and you think he's just going to be great around the rim, but I think he's found ways to... Uh, changes pace near the rim, which I think matters a lot when there's it's just sort of a one-on-one -on -one scenario in a fast break. 
and just find ways to get it off the glass a little cleaner and that's going to help him a lot especially if his if his shot is struggling uh something we've talked about and we just actually made a video about if you haven't watched it go to our youtube channel check it out it's about whether or not the suns have an mvp candidate it's the importance of the two guys that are very 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 important on this team that's devin booker and chris paul we were talking before we started recording dan and you seem to be defaulting to saying that devin booker is more important now i want to just preface all of this with it it probably matters uh very little uh to suns fans at this point because it's just like they're winning so who cares but i do think that devin booker is in a weird place where he has spent so much of his time in the nba with terrible 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 teammates and that has caused his overall reputation uh, for a lot of people who don't necessarily watch a lot of the Suns to, to tank. People don't really give him a lot of credit for the Suns winning. Uh, they'll just point at Chris Paul because he's the new addition and talk about how important he is. What makes Devin Booker stand out to you when you watch the Suns as far as importance to them winning? I think the attention he draws, whether he's on or off the ball, and we talked about this a little bit before the pod, is there's just going to be different types of defenders that are going to go after him. Um, you guys mentioned that teams are going to be less likely to trap Chris Paul as well. Like Those are going mm-hmm. towards Devin Booker. Uh, like He's going to face more of those double teams. And I, you know, people pointed to the assist numbers. It, he's playing with some. This is the first time. Like if you just look at his supporting cast in the past, like it was first that he couldn't win, and now that they're winning, it's, oh, well, that's clearly not – it's it's he's clearly not most responsible for that and i'm just like this is the first time that he's had a really good supporting cast around him for an entire year and that's independent of chris paul if you took chris paul off this team it's still the best supporting cast that devin booker has had in large part because you would have someone like mikhail bridges playing his, the best basketball of his career for the entire season so i look at still his efficiency where there have been shots this year where i feel like he's gone through stretches where he's not hitting shots that he normally would but the the difference in cadence that he can play with off the dribble, that is just huge when it's breaking down defenses. You guys mentioned already that he does a ton off the ball. That actually might have been before we recorded, so maybe you technically didn't mention that already, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, that's just More on that, that more on that coming to our YouTube channel soon. So <laughs> I look at that as that attention that he's commanding to help make life easier on Chris Paul, at least just as much as Paul's made life easier on him. It's huge, and this isn't strictly a Chris Paul thing. The the non-CP3 minutes with Devin Booker this year, the Suns have basically just annihilated opponents. They're on plus 10.2 points per 100 possessions when he plays without CP3. And the thing I notice is that they've each played like an identical number of possessions without the other. They're within 10 possessions of each other in those situations. Not pertinent to this conversation, but I found that interesting. Uh, so yeah, yeah. he's... This- I- it's just yeah that and i guess it's it's hard to distinguish and that's where i landed on when i actually watched your video on that mvp discussion the thing that probably doesn't get talked about enough is this might be the most equitable star partnership in the league where two guys are so close to each other in individual standing relative to other stars if you look at lebron and ad for instance like there's still a clear demarcation line between them lebron is much better than ad uh, Giannis is much better than Drew Holiday or Chris Middleton. Jokic is much much better than Jamal Murray. The the closest like mirror example might be in Brooklyn between Durant and Harden, but Durant just hasn't played most of the season, so you haven't seen that same MVP cannibalization happen. And I think that's what's more so at play in Phoenix is Chris Paul and Devin Booker are so close in value that they're taking attention away from one another, or in Booker's case specifically. Paul is is the new ad, and that's when the Suns have turned, even though people are forgetting that the Suns were monsters in the bubble 
last year. And so I think that contributes to sort of the, which still seems like a lack of national attention for Devin Booker, even though I think people came around a while ago to that he wasn't this empty calories guy. That narrative sort of died, but now it's, oh, he needed Chris Paul to get the Suns to this level. And I was like, well, you need a second star in this league to get to this level, period. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, just real quick, uh, this we're recording this before the Spurs game, which is Saturday, uh, first time the Suns play the Spurs. And just ESPN Stats and Info tweeted a few things about the Suns this morning that I think is funny when you talk about them being equitable stars. Uh, entering tonight's game, Devin Booker needs just eight points to become the ninth player to reach 9,000 career points before turning 25. And that would mean he would join LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Carmelo Anthony, Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Shaquille O'Neal, and Anthony Davis. A pretty insane list of stars to, to, to join in that list. But in the same game, Chris Paul could enter the night if he scores 32 points. He would pass John Stockton for 48th on the NBA's all-time scoring list. So in like a single game, two like monumental things could happen. Obviously, the Devin Booker won 9,000 points, not a major thing. But if you look at the, the amount of guys who have done it, it's a, it's a list that makes you uh, kind of kind of blows your mind. And then, of course, Chris Paul, one of the best players all time, can go up on that all-time scoring list. It's, it is bizarre. I know that you were high on the Suns, and, and I know that you expected them to be good, but did you expect Chris Paul to just maintain? He's arguably better than last season at this point. It's tough to make a case that he's not better than last season at this point. Did that surprise you? I I think the only thing that's really surprised me about his performance is the availability. I just thought there'd be more missed time from him, especially when you're looking at him not really having missed a ton of time last year. And so I don't think his, his performance, like it just... When you look at what he did in crunch time last season, he's just, he's so automatic. I'm actually like, I even look at like his, it took his like three point clip. It feels like that's too low over the past three seasons. And like, he's not hitting as high a clip of his pull up threes this year. So I'm not saying I'm disappointed, but I, I mostly expected this level of play. I just didn't expect it to be so reliable in terms of how often he's doing it. I just thought there would be rest nights baked in, but I, I obviously underestimated vegan CP3. <laughs> you know, I actually saw Mike uh, make a really good point this morning. I thought the Suns have these weird two games against the Spurs as the final two games. Again, they play tonight. We haven't. We're recording before. But they have their final two games of the regular season against the Spurs. And what a good opportunity that would be if the Spurs are still seventh and the Suns are still the second seed to just rest everyone for, for the final two games of the regular season and kind of not tip your strategy to pop of, of what you're going to run out there whatsoever and still find a way to rest Chris Paul at the same time. Again, I don't think he would do it, but it would be kind of a bizarre sort of thing where to avoid the Suns and Spurs potentially playing nine times in a row, you could <laughs> kind of kind of give everyone a couple nights off. Uh, I would be shocked if if a Spurs Sun series got past the fifth game, so I wouldn't be as worried about that. I think <laughs> I think the Suns are. I don't know what would be a good matchup for San Antonio, but I think if you're hoping for a first round opponent at your Phoenix, I might single out San Antonio as the team I'd want to go yeah, up against. I, I agree, unless like you know Memphis was gonna. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I'm not. Even, I, again, like, I'm not worried about any of them. I'm not worried about Portland or, or Dallas either, frankly. I just wouldn't want to. If you don't have to face Luca or Dame in round one, yeah, like, yeah. that that's great. Uh, but yeah, the Spurs are just like a team that I feel like they could actually beat up on. But I would I would pick, and I already mentioned this. I would pick the Suns in I think any likely first round matchup that we could configure at the moment. There are the Suns are about to enter 
one of the more difficult road trips that may probably the most difficult road trip that they have all season. It is the Milwaukee Bucks on Monday, a back to back of Philadelphia and Boston on Wednesday and Thursday. And then, uh, Saturday, Brooklyn, and then the New York Knicks next, I'm sorry, Sunday, Brooklyn and the New York Knicks next Monday. Um, I think the three most fascinating games are probably Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and Boston, and then Brooklyn. It all depends on who plays. Um, because you never really know who's going to play uh, for the Brooklyn Nets. They seem to be strategically or maybe not strategically resting. I don't know what to make of that. Um, let's just quickly talk about the Bucks. Uh, I think that's a really interesting matchup. I know you live in New York. We figured Dan lives in New York. He probably knows more about the Eastern Conference than us. When you think about <laughs> <laughs> when you think about these games, starting with Milwaukee, how do you think the Suns match up against a team like the Bucks? I I honestly don't know. I feel like Milwaukee has the ability to really gum up their offense, though, and they've tr- they've tested out more switching, which I think the Suns are probably uniquely mm-hmm. built to. They can frustrate them in those situations. But when you look at having Drew Holiday, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and even Chris Middleton on the floor at the same time, or if you're playing them with Dante Divincenzo, who can be disruptive defensively, those like that's a that's terrifying. And I think I'm wondering if. Milwaukee goes to Giannis at center where it's PJ Tucker's on the floor or they're running Pat Connaughton instead whatever the you know the de facto guy next to him in the front court is I those Dario Sharts minutes like if th- that's the the time that's going up against um Giannis how do those fare do you need to have DeAndre Ayton on the court in those situations and so I I, I probably of the three teams that we're prepared to focus on I might like the Bucks matchup for them the least which is just bizarre when knowing that Brooklyn has you know three top 15 or whatever players on its team as as I look at the week ahead personally it's it's so tough because um I'm, I'm gonna single out Boston and kind of toss them aside for a second well I guess I'd start here Dan Brooklyn Milwaukee Philly one of those teams is going to the finals out of the Eastern Conference, right? Can we can we reasonably say that it's one of those teams going to the... Is there any other team in the East that you can even see more than like a 2% chance of they get to the finals? I can't get there. It would have to be Boston or Miami, I think. And with Victor Oladipo's injury in Miami, I don't think he's mission critical to them, but that was like their second half swing piece where if he's even close to what he was when he was making all-star teams and made his all-NBA team... That's huge for them, and they needed someone who could put more pressure on the rim. But he's injured, and I think at this point we've seen a bigger sample of Victor Oladipo not being that player. I don't know that you can just assume it'll happen. And Boston, I just can't, you know, and I'm glad you guys brought me on for this analysis. I have no feel for Boston whatsoever. They are just, they're <laughs> they're playing better now, and I think having, you know, Marcus, seven Seven of their last eight, yeah, yeah they've and won. Having Marcus Smart um, back is good for them. Uh, Robert Williams has played well for them in stretches. You still have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who's been unconscious lately, it seems like. I just don't... They've Looking at their past stretches this season, I don't know how you could trust them. And I, I do think the bigger thing here is that you just get into questions about their depth, which might not be as important in the postseason when you're looking at playing seven or eight guys, but you can't name you know, seven dependable guys on this team. They really start to, you name their top four or five players, and that's where you start to run out of of dependence there. And they're so, uh, you know, a team that could stand to put more pressure on the rim. Like, they're so reliant on their jump shots. And uh, a lot of their jump shots where, you know, if you contrast them to what Phoenix is doing um, from the mid-range or from three, they just don't feel as easy when you watch Boston. And so if you're predicated on hitting jumpers, fine. When you're predicated on hitting ridiculously difficult jumpers 
there's there's sort of an, an issue there. So I maybe two percent is like too low <laughs> just because it's the East, but at the same time I would be flabbergasted if we have a team other than Milwaukee, Philly, or Brooklyn coming out. Yeah, and Philly uh Philly's one of the games where like if it was a normal if, if the Suns were just any team that is a good team, then I'd probably be more afraid of Philadelphia. But for some reason Devin Booker just kills the Philadelphia 76ers. He always plays really well against that team. There is like a, a subplot of uh, Ben Simmons, and uh, Ben Simmons' ex is Devin Booker's current uh, girlfriend. So girlfriend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is that. a subplot there where in the last Philadelphia game, it seems like Devin Booker was specifically targeting Ben Simmons one-on-one uh, to try and score as many points on him as possible. But even before that, I, I, I you know he had some pretty – there's a game where he scored 46 I've, points. I've, pu- I've pulled it up here. Yeah, I pulled it up here. Devin Booker in 11 career games against Philly. 29.7 points, 4.4 rebounds, 4.5 assists per game. 49% from the field, 48% from deep. Oh. When you when you add in the fact that like three of those games are from the first two Booker seasons when he was like either a, a rookie teenager. and scoring like 10 yeah. points per game or <laughs> a teenager, yeah. That is insane for him to have a career average of 30 yeah, against that but team. to be fair to the 76ers they have a uh, an mvp candidate i don't want to get into that <laughs> conversation because of apparently that just throws every podcast <laughs> off the rails um but we don't want to be obtuse yeah <laughs> i don't want to, i don't want dan calling me a jackass uh but <laughs> uh i see what i see though and with philadelphia and Bede's obviously pretty amazing. They have one of the best defenses in the NBA. A bunch of wing defenders to throw at the Suns. And they've made a trade. George Hill, I'm not sure when he'll be available. I know he's missed some time recently. But it's possible that he'll play in that game. What's your read on the 76ers? How good do you think they are? And how do you think they match up against the Suns? They are currently my pick to come out of the East. And I'll preface that with it wow. is the slightest of margins uh, look i was all in on the joel Embiid mvp train and then he he got injured i would still you know i don't know that he can win the award when you're looking at how as someone who are, are you suggesting that missing 18 games would impact his <laughs> it's his sucked. candidacy it, it sucks but yeah when it's injury related it this wasn't like him being absent you know 20 games in the league's health and safety <laughs> protocols where i think sure. you can at least rule it out but um there, he's been i don't know he is probably the biggest issue for this i'm that's obviously not a hot take he's the biggest issue for every team i don't know how they're supposed to defend him and the way he's playing on offense right now uh, seems uniquely able to destroy whatever big body they're going to try and place on him whether it's deandre ayton whether it's going to be you know do we see dario shars go up against joel Embiid? the thought of that is just a little terrifying he killed him in the last game so they're gonna have to i mean dario saric killed uh Embiid surprisingly in the last matchup like it was one of dario's best games of the season well i think if you're the suns could you look at it through the lens of well shars is gonna at least give you a little bit of a mismatch offensively himself and so we're going to, if it ends up that he has to defend Joel Embiid, like that's fine. Or is, is Sharge just at this point better to defend against Embiid's, you know, off the dribble long twos or his three point shooting, which both he's shooting both looks at a career high clips right now. And I don't think it's, again, I don't know how they're supposed to stop him, but that might be interesting where it's like, well, Sharge is still going to provide an element of, of a mismatch on defense where um, Aiton's game, I feel like Embiid is, and I don't know the the numbers of when they've gone up against each other in the past. I don't actually think I saw the last Sun Sixers game, 
So I wouldn't be able to speak to that. But I feel like Embiid might be having an easier time of shutting DeAndre Ayton down, even if he is, you know, attacking the basket or rolling hard to the basket. So if the greater context of this conversation is we want to see the Suns play good teams so that we can project what they're going to do in the playoffs, I hope people can understand, like, this is why Mike and I, basically every week, we all know we put so much on DeAndre Ayton. But, like, this is why, because as I'm thinking about these games, every game this week, DeAndre Ayton is going to be the X factor. If you want to stop Giannis, DeAndre Ayton historically has actually a pretty decent track record against Giannis. He's going to have to be a big body. He's going to have to stay close to the rim, and he's going to have to kind of wall things up. Against Philly, it's going to be DeAndre Ayton playing an MVP candidate. And then as we look forward ahead to Brooklyn, what happened in the last game when Phoenix and Brooklyn played? Phoenix narrowly lost that game. They tried to switch everything and put Ayton on the perimeter. And in that game, it was James Harden who cooked him repeatedly. Not saying that that would happen if they tried it again this time necessarily, but you can very easily see how it's how DeAndre Ayton defends in different schemes becomes the margin that makes or breaks you when you play these top teams. Even if these are Eastern Conference teams that you wouldn't hypothetically see until the finals, this is why we put so much on DeAndre Ayton. Because as I look at this week, like let's just all agree, he's going to be the X factor this week, right? There's no yeah. one else. Yeah, I would agree. I, mean, with, I, would, I would agree. There's always the the Devin Booker 45 points that could be the difference maker in any of these games. But yeah, on the defensive end, it ha- I mean, who else could it be? It, it really has to be DeAndre Ayton. Would you consider, though, and maybe these aren't games to use as experimentation, but at the same time, maybe they could be because you're not going to face these teams in the playoffs unless you make it to the finals. Can you get weird and see like, well, do we just try and, I mentioned it before, just mismatch the hell out of these teams by putting stars Mm -hmm. at the five more or i guess that really that's actually a bad thought because that's really only going to help you against philly i think it's not going to help you against milwaukee if they use Giannis there and you know brooklyn i don't know if you guys have watched much of nick claxton but if if they're willing to play him um that Mm -hmm. guy is statistically according to b-ball index one of the most switchable (laughs) players over the past like 10 years yeah they nailed uh they absolutely nailed that pick well let me let me throw something at you dan uh, I, don't, I don't expect that you watched a random uh, regular season game of Suns versus Kings. Uh, <laughs> but what happened in the Suns-Kings game is that the Kings were just hitting every three. And they were legitimately hitting threes off the dribble, around screens, off movement. Lots of, lots of things that make it difficult uh, for the Suns to defend because when teams hit the probably one of the more difficult shots... Uh, it makes it hard to defend. So what the Suns did is they took both DeAndre Ayton and Dario Saric out. DeAndre Ayton was good in that game. It's just he can't play 48 minutes. And they played with Torrey Craig at center. And when they played with Torrey Craig at center, what they did is they switched everything and they played an ultra-aggressive perimeter defense, uh, which I love to see. I've been really waiting for the Suns to, to experiment with that kind of lineup with extended minutes. And they hadn't done it yet. Like, they, they, they put it... They put Tory Craig in center, uh, like in end of game scenarios where they're just for like one single possession, and then they put DeAndre Ayton back in. But say the Nets are really doing what they did in the last game, which is just forcing. They played really small, and they forced a switch with DeAndre Ayton on uh, on James Harden, and and he would either shoot a three or just drive right past him if his feet were too close to that three point line. Do you think that that is a legitimate thing? It's something that I've been asking for. It's something that I would like to see, and I think the Nets are the team that could really force them to do it. Do you think that's something that they should experiment with more? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I will endlessly lobby for the the super small lineups. 
And I do think there are certain matchups where you can write those off. It's going to be the biggest problem for you defensively. And there are certain matchups where you could write it off as, okay, well, if we, you know, maybe the Nets can force their hand there, but if you want to be the the team that's trying to maybe dictate the style of play, is it, it's not unfair to just assume that Embiid is going to chew up who's ever at center. And so mm-hmm. why not try and gain an edge on, on offense there? And you do have just, I mean, the Suns have a lot of good at this point would feel like team defenders so you might be able to get away with it so i would absolutely try it out and at this point it does feel like when you just look at the standings if you were completely worried about seeding it feels like they're essentially barring disaster locked into one or two and so why not get Mm -hmm. a little funky with how you're going to play down the stretch especially against some of these good teams because they're at least you know parallels for what you might face in the western conference playoffs it's not just like you know, you're going to go up against the, the struggling Pacers or you're going to go up against the Bulls without without Zach Levine or just or Detroit. Like, try it against the good teams and, and see what happens. Even against the Bucks, you know, if you're that worried about Dario on Giannis, just put Craig on him. I think he'd probably do a better job, right? Even Jay Crowder, like, could help you in yeah. those situations, I would think. Mm-hmm. He, guarded, he guarded Giannis in the playoffs uh, last year, <laughs> not that long ago. Still can't believe and- the Heat, like... I don't know if he I'm sure he would have came back if they were willing to pay him I just can't believe that the Suns got him at the mid-level that was a hell of a signing well it's yeah, funny I mean, enough like the the Heat didn't do it because they wanted a chance at Giannis <laughs> it seems like that was the main thing my theory and I'm just going to assume that it's a fact is that Giannis purposely signed when he did to wait until the free agency hoopla was over so he could screw over every single mm. other team that was planning on signing him I hope that's what he did because I, I love pettiness <laughs> it's a it's a brilliant move um, Sam, you got, you got any more questions for Dan before we let him go? Um, I'd say the, the last one here, Dan. Like, what is a good week for the Suns? Let's throw the Knicks game in there too. So let's say it's the next five games. You got Milwaukee, Philly, uh, Boston, Brooklyn, New York. What does a good week look like? I think if you come out of that three and two, if you come out, I I would expect two and three just because of the gravity of the road trip. And so if you come out at two and three, I would think that's fine. If you come out at three and two. That's ideal to me. And if you come out better than that, you know, there, then there's clearly something to the Suns are only there. Just put any good team against them, and I guess they're going to win because their record against opponents 500 or better oh, yeah. is, is the best in the league right now, I believe. Yep. So um, there's a chance they could do better. But if you guys, you know, you're going to know their past schedule better than I did, this is probably going to be just their hardest road trip of the season. So hovering yeah. around 500 would be huge for them, I think. Yeah, they also have the best road record in the NBA at seventeen and seven. Uh, so, so not only do they have do they play well against teams over five hundred, they also do well on the road. Uh, seventeen and seven is probably benefited from the fact that they haven't gone on this specific road trip that they're going on right now, uh, because this could be the one that that hurts them in that stat. The Phoenix Suns at twenty and six. I'm just looking at the expanded standings right here. The Suns at 20 and 6 above teams above 500 are only a half game back of what the Sixers do. Wait, excuse me. I'm I'm reading this wrong. Where the f- Oh, okay. <laughs> they're only hey, hey. They're only a half game back of what the Bucks do against teams under 500. The Bucks are 21 and 6 against teams under 500. The Suns are 20 and 6 against teams above 500. The Bucks are only 14 and 14 against yeah. 500 plus teams. That's pretty crazy. I know Giannis has missed about 10 games, but still yeah, and look, they this might is, get. I wouldn't call this a break because I'm sure that like the, the Nets will still be good. But is James Harden going to be ready to play? Because the Nets have already said they don't have a timetable for his return, and they want him to get like two practices in or something. 
um, mm-hmm. before he comes back to the court. So there was, I don't know that I would predict he won't play, but if he doesn't play, then you do have just Kevin Durant, who's a wild card, or there's at least a chance just based off what happens with Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant this season that you're facing only a, a one-star Nets team, which would be ideal for them just looking at the the type of road trip that they're going up against. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating week. It'll be interesting to come back after this one and talk about it. And they got a back-to-back with the, the Knicks when, after we record our next week's podcast. But Dan... Thank you so much for joining us. Read Dan on Bleacher Report. Uh, listen to the Hardwood Knox podcast. Follow him on Twitter. Dan, is there anything else that you'd like to promote? Nope, you covered it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for joining us. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.